This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast that discusses all things on the intersection of finance and energy. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today with upstream thought leader and expert Bob Fricklin. How are you, Bob? Fine, Hill. Good to see you again, I guess, right these days, huh? Yeah, I think this is, uh, we, we used to, I guess, see each other every day in the same corner of the office, and now we're or at least three days a week or something. Now we're seeing each other for the first time, probably in about a year, I guess, yeah. via video. Might be, yeah. Well, I guess everyone's getting used to the uh, video and the uh, sort of Brady Bunch uh, look when we all get on Zoom calls and things, right? Yeah. Or what was the uh, what was the game show? The uh, we had all the different contestants in each corner. Laughing. Was it laughing? <laughs> uh, so I don't know, but yeah, your, before your time. Well, I, I remember. I remember the the, the, the name. I, I don't remember. I don't think I watched that one. Um, but but I certainly remember the Brady Bunch reruns growing up. So we are here today to discuss upstream exploration, and, and uh, it struck me recently, you know, you and I and, and others used to talk often about uh, exploration activity and super basins and basin concentration, whatever else, and, and all of that kind of dried up as uh, activity was kind of, you know, I guess, withering. And I saw a recent report um, that, that you contributed to showing just a, a gross reduction in exploration activity globally, which... Uh, you know, it's kind of like the old adage with uh, if you want to improve test scores at a school, just get rid of the underperformers. Um, so, so the success rate, I think, was up um, because the expiration activity was down. What was it 50 percent? Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's a long term trend, right? It goes back to 2009, really, when the rate of return on capital employed just fell off the map. We went down into the single digits. And ever since then, you know, we've had a couple of down cycles, but uh, expiration um, has been trying to reinvent itself. So activity uh, last year, when we look at the discoveries, is we haven't seen anything like that since um, 1952 um, as far. And so it's there's a lot of things going on uh, that we can we can talk about, but it's really this uh, reset or redefinition of upstream mm-hmm. has now kind of put an umbrella over the top of how we define exploration and, and companies are making uh, a lot of difficult choices. Uh, and that ranges from someone saying, well, well, I'm getting out of deep water or I'm getting out of a region. And you think of uh, how many years of expertise that is involved in that and building that program and making a successful one. But more importantly, you also think about perhaps is the amount of money uh, that was spent in there. So you have companies that used to spend um, close to a billion dollars a year on expiration, who are now down to $300 million a year. And and that makes it uh, really difficult to do much, right? Um, you can't, the, the well costs have come down, but it, it's still, that dollar doesn't go very far. You know, you have $10 million 3D seismic surveys, you have a $50, $60 million well, and you're trying to run a portfolio. It makes it quite a challenge. But but uh, we can talk about some of the things that are going on. Part of this, shift. yeah, 
Well, you know, I, I guess maybe before we get into that, what, what if we, you know, can we review a little bit of, um, you know, I, I acknowledge right before we start recording that uh, I totally missed that the, the Black Sea TPAOs, T -T Turkish Petroleum, uh, uh, what was it, the, the Sakaria uh, discovery last year? Yeah, there's a couple. So when you look at the areas in the world that are active right now, it's it's a lot of the same suspects, right? Whether it's uh, Santos Basin or Guyana offshore, the mega plays or trends, as we call them, um, you know, tend to get a lot of attention because uh, the old adage of uh, the big plays or big discoveries are found first. Um, it definitely holds through. It's generally the biggest discovery is not the first discovery. Interestingly, it's quickly followed up by by the next ones as you kind of um, calibrate your seismic, calibrate your geoscience, uh, and hone in a little more on your drilling operations. And so the Eastern Med had been one of those hot spots, right? Follow, right. Following up on Zor, um, there were a number of other discoveries there. I guess one might even attribute it even further back to the discoveries that Noble had offshore Israel. But that whole Levant Basin then was quickly followed up, um, you know, by people in Cyprus, like ExxonMobil. Mm -hmm. And then in Turkey, it's not it's not really the Eastern Med per se. It's a kind of a no man's land between Central Asia and and the Med um, where you have the Black Sea. And the Black Sea was once kind of written off by a lot of folks because of it's relatively, um, I guess, difficult geological circumstances. Um, people thought it may not have um, the right kind of reservoirs in there or so it took a, a lot of time before people really started looking at the deep water part of it shallow water we had looked at uh, and so there were a number of earlier discoveries um, exxon was involved again in one there were some other wells and other parts of it that kind of helped in our understanding and in fact there'll be an apg seg session on it which i'll be kicking off in september and we're going to look at that area uh, in particular, one of the um, Turkish Petroleum vice presidents will be talking about the Black Sea. But but that followed, I guess, what you would say is a normal path in the exploration world. Got a little more data, a little more data, and then people started to figure it out. And um, TPAO made uh, not just one, but um, I think we're up to three interesting discoveries that um, will definitely change that area. Uh, in particular, to help Turkey with its energy needs for sure. And is that that's the basic market for right? At least the the, the Turkish discovery was going to help meet the needs of Turkey domestic gas. Yeah, I mean Turkey kind of sits at the crossroads, right? That was sort right. of always where it was. So you have gas coming in from um, a lot of areas, some coming up from the south, from the Middle East, and you have a, a bunch of it coming across from Azerbaijan and Turkmenistan, and then of course the northern part, you have some gas coming in. So Turkey has both a role, um, as I guess you would say, as a transport sort of country, much like Italy does for the uh, Libyan and Algerian gas that's coming across from North Africa. Uh, Turkey will have that sort of similar role, but more importantly, you know, these days when we look at the gas balance, everybody's um, talks a lot about what well, we're, you know, we're oversupplied in gas. You know, you look mm -hmm. at some countries like the United States and there's more than 1100 trillion cubic feet of gas sitting out there you know under four dollars and you're thinking well we don't we don't need to find gas and but in actuality there are a number of regions and countries that are in desperate need of it you know and china's the poster child and it used to be japan and korea 
but now um, there are other places, uh, you know, the Middle East has a big push outside of Qatar and Iran, you know, there's not a lot of it ready access gas. So Turkey, you know, coming up with some more domestic gas will definitely help them lower their, their investments in overseas dollars for, for importing gas and, and let them, it'll give them the optionality then to look at a number of things, whether it's you know, moving molecules around and, you know, it's a fungible thing, but for sure that's, that'll help. So when I mean when we're looking at and the Eastern Med has been a hotbed for you know uh, you know I would say yes going back to that noble Leviathan discovery and then you've got Soar you've got the Cypriot activity which I think you mentioned is Exxon and then now this I mean that this is becoming a a real gas I guess sink a real gas uh, hub what are the kind of commercialization challenges or, or how where does Turkey now fit into this because TPAO if I'm correct, doesn't have a lot of experience bringing things to market, or do they have? Is this going to be monetized, or do they have those plans in their way? Yeah, I wouldn't say that they're. The, I mean, there's always some challenges, right? I mean, it's about there's some logistics these days. There, uh, it's it's keeping the cost down, but they're a good operator. I wouldn't say it's such a big issue. Their bigger problem, perhaps, is that it, it is in deeper water, so they haven't. Maybe that's what you're alluding to. It's a. Mm-hmm. It is kind of a first for them in the deeper water, but a lot of that technology is available these days. Um, the drilling companies, so they they'll have to, um, you know, stick it much like one of the Olympic gymnasts right now have to stick <laughs> landing in order to get full credit. But I think they can manage to do that. Um, you know, they have a pretty long history in the business. But I think you know some of the other regional challenges, of course, are related to, uh, and I guess some of it was the first where there still is a little bit of tension is back on the med side as you know turkey does have shall we say some, some discussion and disputes around um some of the borders shall we say around there um, maybe not as as much as one would think of, of being um shall we say totally in agreement um and and that was something that was remarkable and you know i think it goes perhaps it was the first at sarah week where we saw the Israelis, the Cypriots, and the Egyptian ministers all get together and start a dialogue and start trying to work out how that works. They just need to expand that now, and we need to bring in the, the Turkish authorities so that things can be developed in that region in a cooperative way where everyone is a, is a winner. But, you know, that was part of the early day problem with uh, things. And then the Levant, uh, and particularly Leviathan, was a long time coming, right? That took a lot of... Right. Uh, maneuvering by Noble um, over the years. Um, IHS Market actually helped with that, with the government and Israel providing some guidance on how other countries and and models worked for that. But um, there's also, uh, of course, Egypt has had a long history of oil and gas, uh, probably some of the most uh, on scale in that region. And they went through some growing pains as well. Um, Now with the LNG is They've got a deal where they can uh, bring gas over to Israel. They've got a lot of different things going on that before were just not thought as possible because of some of the, uh, not so much the logistics, but the geopolitical issues. But those are getting worked out. Is there at all all a race to market in in any of this, or is there enough um, markets for getting to move ahead? Certainly, there's a lot of competitiveness. The race to market is definitely still there. I don't, you don't necessarily have to be first though. I mean, there's enough room in that Eastern Med Park, definitely mm-hmm. for gas. You know, there are some longer term questions that'll start to evolve as the energy transition plays out, but 
for the near term, for the next um, 15 plus years, you know, there's a strong need for um, competitive gas uh, to to keep the economies uh, moving in the region for sure. And then export, of course, is a, is a, a big bonus, right? Rather than it's always great when you change yourself around from a consuming nation to a producing nation, and even more so when you become a net exporter. I mean, just look at what happened in the United States, right? I mean, phenomenal what happened in the gas business. You know, we went from being this massive demand sink to all of a sudden we're we're going to end up being around number three in the export business in the world, you know, surpassing Australia and perhaps coming coming up here soon. But we won't catch guitar, but we'll definitely be in the top top three for a number of years, given the remarkable um, resources that that are there. Um, so it's a, it's a critical thing for uh, com- countries to particular, whether national companies that are running things to help them with their um, social economic programs and give mm-hmm. them more optionality, just like a, an oil and gas, a private company um, or public publicly traded one to their shareholders, right? It's better to, to have that, which is kind of an interesting thing, right? These days where we see more and more companies focused on very few bases and that's been a, a big trend well i guess the, the other thing you know you, you bring in the united states which you know it had all the success on gas and, and to a large degree oil as well with, with the onshore um you know uh, hydraulic fracturing and hydro, um, horizontal drilling and if we compare that to, to some of the uh i guess frontier or emerging activity would which i you know I, I guess turkey would probably be or black sea would, would that classify as emerging and our kind of schema yeah absolutely it's moved out of the frontier yeah we spent some time a, a couple of years ago looking at basins and what their um, evolution is mm-hmm. um, and we, we developed a set of criteria and it follows very much a you know a bell curve where you you kind of start with frontier then there's emerging then there's mature and then on the downslope things like uh, the permian basin or the north sea you get a rejuvenating and, and that's been one of the biggest success stories really in the last five years is how many of these basins that we had more or less um, written off or kind of thought that they were going to prov- provide us with somewhat lackluster discoveries, you know, nothing that was going to hit the headlights or make it be a company maker by and large. Um, has really surprised people as they shifted out of the, the frontier business. I mean, frontier is still, I guess, to me, is always been the most fun being an ex-frontier uh, new venture guy. Right. Uh, I like to think when I when I give talks, sometimes I I tell everybody to um, to answer a couple of questions. I say, well, do you like to travel to new places? You know, raise your hand and get a bunch of them. I say, well, do you do you like to go to new restaurants? I say, yeah, we like to do that. And I say, well, in general, do you like to do new things? And they and the ones that raise their hands on on two out of three of those, I say, well, now you're an official explorer. <laughs> um, because you know that's that's what's the fun about new ventures and frontier is is figuring out a puzzle that no one else has and then watching that mature. Um, in the last um, five years or so, however, the number of companies doing frontier exploration has plummeted. In fact, there's probably less than ten in the world right now that are truly active in that. So uh, many of the uh, European super majors have now sworn that off. Um, right and um, changing their tune and so it's interesting to watch now that pretty much everyone has shifted to less risk Um, and in some cases that means less reward 
uh, and it's a pretty significant magnitude. You, know, you go from a frontier discovery that averages over 100 million barrels a day to something that that's in a mature basin and that's um, is going to bring you down into around 30 million barrels a day. So it's a it's a big difference. But there are still some companies that are at it, a couple, particularly the U.S. super majors. There are some independents that are still at new ventures. But um, the E that we call, as we call it, big E, um, it's very difficult to get funded as a startup anymore because investors want to see that you return money, quite frankly, much quicker. And so that's been a big challenge. Um, you know, from when we come up with an idea to when we see the first oil um, used to average around seven, seven years. And that, as we all know, is a, may not seem like a long time as you're growing up or something, but it is in our business. It's a long time. And particularly these days, that could be two cycles, right? And an up and down yeah. price cycle. So um, people have, have shifted then to uh, emerging and mature basins. And those emerging basins generally is where you make the most money. And, and so Black Sea is one of those, uh, and, and there are a lot of others right now that are coming along. Um, so how should we think about kind of the competitive environment for exploration to today? I mean, that if, if we think back, you know, eight or 10 years ago, you had a whole class of pure play explorers that, that were generating, you know, some, some relatively promising prospects with some level of confidence that they were going to be able to monetize that prospect if they themselves couldn't bring it to market due to some of the uh, technical challenges. Uh, and a lot of those, what I would consider world-class explorers have been swallowed by majors or super majors. And, and, and then as you mentioned, that they're now competing for capital in ways that exploration isn't maybe winning uh, every quarter or every year uh, or every cycle. How should we look at this landscape today? Yeah, so it is a, a very um, interesting. So the upstream business people for many years have always you go all the way back to the days of the first discoveries in East, East Texas, it's sort of a herd mentality, right? Somebody would make a big discovery and they all come piling in. Everybody says, oh, you know, we know that the first field is not the biggest field and we want to get in here before um, that bell curve, that, that upward mm -hmm. part of the bell curve is taken over. And, you know, Guiana was a feeding frenzy. Um, Brazil was a feeding frenzy. So all these places have been feeding frenzies. Um, the East Med, uh, when we make those discoveries. But what's happened though um, over the over the last couple of years is companies have um, shifted to the more what we call proven basin, which are both emerging and mature, uh, buying down risk, being looking at models where they can get that uh, discovery online in, in five years and in some mm -hmm. cases three. In other places like the Gulf of Mexico, they're they're able to come up with new models, the kind of the old, what we call the hub and spoke put down a platform in a region and maybe um, tie in um, discoveries that are a couple of wells in size um, from a number of blocks into one hub station. And so we've, we've seen people be very creative about making the, the economics work, making that vulnerability to uh, crude pricing uh, cycles less. Uh, and of course, um, all of this is in order to Try to uh, make sure that the shareholders and the stakeholders get a competitive rate of return, and that that really has been the, the the backbone of many of the changes. So you have a lot of those, as you say, those top peer explorers. Of which, uh, let's see, well, it's probably two years ago that I did some work where I looked at who they were, and 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 when you looked at that of the 
of the group, there really were only four explorers in the last 10 years up to 2020 who consistently were good at new venture exploration. Would you be so, uh, able to mention those names? Um, I'll, I'll stay away from names today, but I think, <laughs> um, you know, the interesting thing is that when you have a portfolio, obviously, if you're doing it right every year, you're high grading it. And right. so as you keep drilling down on your portfolio, in theory, if you don't do a good job of renewing it, you're going to, you run the danger of falling off the list. And so that, that was what was really remarkable about the ones that for 10 years could manage to stay on that list in those top positions, right? When very um, few people could do that. But interestingly, if you if you split things into different time zones, the folks that were um, from 2010 to 20 in that top group were not necessarily the folks that were there from um, the 10 years prior to that. In fact, many of them weren't. So Were the geographies um, consistent. What was it? There's a there's yeah. A sometimes it's geography for sure. Uh, some of it was the approach to expiration. Uh, some companies turned things around where they were terrible. They were on the bottom of the list before, um, and it was a matter of of leadership and philosophy. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that's interesting is that the best explorers were not the ones that shot the most seismic. Interestingly enough, so we had a couple of companies. Um, that shot way more seismic than anyone else that were not particularly good at frontier exploration. And then, of course, the other part that you have to keep in mind is there's the volumetric leaders, mm -hmm. which is which is important, but there you cannot be um, straight on volume. As we well know, you need to be the commercial leader as well. And so that that was interesting, too, that many of the um, volume leaders were actually able to convert that and be strong on the commercial side. If we're thinking, you know, over the next, call it 10 years, you know, but based on some of what you were looking at, have, you know, have many of those names changed through merger or consolidation and or are the geographies, is there enough, call it white space within the geographies to repeat any of the successes or within any of those themes? Eastern Med, obviously, an obvious theme that, that has been repeated. Uh, if we include the Black Sea within that merger, kind of definition any others to, to be looking for yeah so that's the put out a paper every year and uh, it's called where to next right and uh, publish that usually in the beginning of the year and interestingly there's a couple things that work here one is of course that everybody shifted over to these proven basins and there's some you know notably big discoveries whether it's bohai or, um, or um, whether it's more stuff in guiana um, we have some in the norwegian barents sea so a lot of folks have shifted over to those kind of old tried and proven basins and coming up with new plays and new ideas, which is the really the critical thing around it. And, and it ranges up and down the map somewhere in Australia. So they're all over the place where these new significant size, you know, a couple hundred million to up to a billion plus barrel discoveries are in proven basins. So one of the things we learned and, and it started when I worked on the super basin stuff about, geez, it's almost almost 10 years ago when I came up with that concept that is really about thinking differently about basins because we didn't really understand a lot of these basins. We didn't know how they were built. Um, we didn't know the true um, history of um, hydrocarbon generation and unconventionals helped us understand even more that we we got the mass balance wrong. There was a lot of, of um, oil that was in there. So we changed the game now and it's really about a 3D volume. 
And the problem is sort of like the kid that goes to the Dairy Queen or something and gets a, a frosty and he tries to put a straw in there and you're trying to suck as much of it out as you can. And it doesn't always work right with one straw. So you got to get creative and put another one in or you get creative and you and you put your hands around it and you warm it up a little to try to get it out. And it's the same. We have a volumetric game. So we are better now at understanding that given the volume and what we, what we well, part of it was we didn't know how deep stuff went. Mm-hmm. But we also didn't know the margins of the basins. And so what we're doing now is we're rethinking all of these basins, particularly the proven ones, and saying, really, what is the, the, the limits of this? Now, there are some that are much better than others. It has to do some cases with the type of geology or the type of basin. Is it a rift basin, passive margin? Was it a prograding one? Were there a lot of clinoforms? Um, you know, the big plays in Alaska. The new discoveries up there, whether it's um, the, the Willow play from Conoco or the um, Pika play from Oil Search um, or the Pantheon discovery, those are all um, clinoforms. You have bottom sets, top sets, um, Argentina, the Vaca Muerta, um, mm-hmm. playing again with top sets and bottom sets. So there's a, a lot of, of ge- old fashioned jolly that's involved, but we're challenging the old paradigms and really looking at things. Black Sea was one of those, I'd say. It was one of those old paradigms that people kind of said, there can't be anything in there, right? It was sort of, it was, we called it the Black Sea because it was like the black hole, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing was going to come out of there probably. You just kind of kept prodding. But that has taught us a lot then about basins. We've done a lot of, of work. Um, our team has taken super basins now and moved it on to what we call basin favorability. Okay. Uh, so we take a lot of those characteristics from the super basins, but we throw out the size and we say, well, what is it that makes basins favorable or unfavorable? And what we discovered in the last um, number of years, last five years, 90, more than 90% of the discoveries have been in these so-called favorable basins. And it has, then you say, okay, well, part of that has to do with just the depth of the basin. So, so a lot of simple geologic concepts that we sometimes got lost in perhaps um, as we kind of dove deeper into our individual disciplines and became experts in geochemistry and or experts in sedimentology, things we, we maybe didn't have that 10,000 foot view that's really helped us now um, think differently about basins. So if we're looking, I mean, if, if we're thinking differently about the basins and we understand some of the, I guess, some of the rocks and, and whatnot better, you know, we, we talked about the technical challenges that some operators might have uh, in, in deep water and the other one being money. You know, how how available is capital either within a, a larger company uh, that, that is managing a portfolio to include exploration or if, say, you and I wanted to, to start our own company, um, you know, would we be able would we have trouble accessing capital if we had a prospect that wasn't going to find market for seven years? Yeah, so let's let's do it in reverse order. So the big E, as we call it, yeah, going out and starting a pure exploration company is a really, really difficult thing. Almost no one's funding that right now. They just don't see the need for that. Even you may have a great idea, but we get pitched great ideas constantly in our office. Folks help looking for for partners um, and, and ways to get financing, but it's it's really difficult. The other part that you kind of have to keep in mind right now, it, what's happened. So we used to be a about an eight hundred billion dollar a year kind of a capex number for ENP overall and over a hundred billion dollars of that was going to the United States and now when we look 
from what's happened after both COVID and, and before that the financial crisis, we've reset that to 400. Now this year, the United States is ramping back up again, but we went down below $50 billion for the US, but still an extremely large significant part. And as we kind of see things changing here, that US number is gonna grow here in the next couple of years. But when you deconvolve it into regions, um, I guess is my point, then the Middle East is a huge portion of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's Brazil uh, and Russia. So uh, of all that money that's out there, it's really not spread into a lot of places. And part of that was a lot of the companies refocused their portfolios over the last 10 years. The first, shall we say, wave was when unconventionals took off in the United States and the, and the U.S. independents that had portfolios around the world, including deep water, said, well, wait a minute. These are capital intensive plays and both of them whether it's deep water or whether it's u.s onshore and so we don't have the people and we don't have the money to do both and so they all did what we call came home right mm-hmm. and since then that contraction has continued to now there's very few u.s operators that are overseas right you can think of probably three or four and that's it most of them are, are very focused and what happened then in the rest of the world was the same thing. Um, companies started looking at their portfolios and the larger companies even and said, you know, we cannot make this work anymore. And then we started layered on top of it in the last five years, the energy transition and in more particular, what's now become known as advantaged barrels, which are barrels that are um, the lowest cost barrels, both um, from a operational sense, so OPEX and CAPEX, but the lowest cost and footprint from uh, um, an emissions and a carbon standpoint and operations, and also um, ones that are close to markets mm-hmm. that need them. Because it doesn't to, I think one of your earlier questions or points was, it doesn't do us any good to find something if you can't sell it, right? I mean, look at places like Tanzania and Mozambique, you know, here we are 10 plus years and nothing's happened really. That's not there. So. Maz and I recently did some work looking at what we call this resource conversion. Mm-hmm. And we're just finishing up the gas one. We looked at liquids first. And it's stunning how many of those discovered undeveloped fields are not getting put online. When you look at gas, less than 9% of the fields in the last 10 years have been put online. Is that something that anybody can keep on their balance book? Absolutely not. You, you're going to get punished big time for that. Liquids, um, what's much better? You know, and, and so, so it varies from region to region. But what what happens then, well, what, what stands out is that, you know, again, it's about when you go exploring, it's not just about finding the hydrocarbons. You got to be able to do something with them. Um, look at Uganda and, and um, Kenya. How many years have those discoveries been there? So, you know, you can start to point some fingers at some companies that were serial explorers good at finding barrels, but bad at converting them. And that's kind of, shall we say, the music stopped. And and so that really is a problem then for companies getting funding. Now, when you look at the larger companies and what's happened to their CapEx, you know, exploration was never a large portion of, of the company's budgets. It, it averaged um, up as high as about 10%. Now, granted, you know, if you're a big super major and you get a billion dollars a year, that's a <laughs> That's a pretty big chunk of money, right? But it, 
But when you start parsing that up into your projects, you know, shooting seismic and drilling. Um, remember, we have um, appraisal wells in the exploration mm -hmm. pocketbook. So when you start doing that and put GNA on it, it you know, it, it didn't go super far. It went went far enough, but not not that far. And and so this has really been a big change uh, from that standpoint. All of a sudden, you say, all right, um, in the new world, um, if I'm a European major, I'm going to change my portfolio in a, in a totally different direction. So not not only did I shrink the number of basins that I'm in, um, we went from a time when super majors like Amico, when, when I looked at it years ago, there were 120 different basins. Wow. And, you know, it was hard for anybody to remember who was who was in charge of what play and where to now that, you know, we went down to 35 about 10 years ago. And now when we look at it, most of that size company has got a portfolio that's down to around 20, some of them even less. And so you're spreading those dollars over fewer basins, which helps you um, with that targeted investment in a big way. But on top of that, now we're saying, well, wait a minute, there's a. There's this new thing that you guys got to worry about for a license to operate, which is your footprint. Mm -hmm. And so that's taking some of the capex for sure, but and more particularly for the European majors who are saying, well, we're taking a different route. So you have those companies that are staying in shall we, what we call traditional EMP. They're using renewables for power for their rigs. They're using them for SCADA units, those kinds of stuff. But then you got another group that says, you know what, we we're going to get we are energy companies and we're going to get into renewables and we're going to get into CCUS and we're going to look at hydrogen. We're going to look at all kinds of other things and they're building portfolios there. So now there's a new um, set of opportunities and more importantly, they're extremely high growth. Right. And so we've kind of forsaken growth. Most of the company growth is a dirty word, right? Because mm -hmm. we. We were into this volume ace, and so growth is a dirty word for E&P, but growth is a fantastic word if you're in the renewables. And so the money that used to, a lot of money now is, is running in for growth for renewables. And of course, that'll get caught up at some point here, but, but that optionality is competing then for those exploration dollars. And so from many of those um, super majors, when we look at them, are going from about 10% of their spend today in renewables to um, in the next 10 years, it'll be as high as 30%. And so that's a massive, massive change. Um, yeah, there's some head to head competition for it. So that that's squeezing it. You've got some companies that, you know, combined everything now. So everything's under subsurface instead of expiration. And so whether you're looking for geothermal, Mm -hmm. You're looking um, on where to place wind farms. You're looking for where to put your solar panels. You need subsurface people and you need surface people. So they're putting them all together and saying, well, you guys are this. You're the, our, our um, earth scientists and engineers. You know, you're the ones that have to help us with this problem. So that's um, a massive shift that's going on. And particularly in the Europeans, you don't see it as much um, in the U.S. companies and some of the national oil companies. So you've got a, an upstream industry that is contracting massively. Right? We're, we've lost um, lots of, uh, of companies here, either from the financial downturn or from mergers. And, and that consolidation is going to continue as we kind of write a new chapter in the, in the uh, oil and gas business. 
Um, they're in fewer basins, but there's more people in those competing. So we've gone through what, um, and it's still going on, is what, what we call the battle of the basins. And so <laughs> um, there used to be a concept that was called um, basin masters. Right. And, and so the basin masters were the folks that knew the subsurface geoscience engineering better than anyone else. And now about, I don't know, five, six years ago, I started talking about really there's the commercial master. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those are the folks that, that um, get the scale and they get the dominance that they can control their own destiny in a basin. Because everything, whether it's oil and gas, um, IT or anything, there's three to five companies that dominate that business. And that's what's happening now in all these basins. There's a battle of who's going to be the dominant player on the commercial side. And that's playing out. It's it's played out in some basins completely now, um, either through attrition, so to speak, or from consolidation. And in some basins, it's still ongoing. It doesn't mean there won't be some smaller companies, privates, et cetera, that can't make money, but they're going to always be, um, you know, behind the big behemoths who can go to the service companies and say, you know what, I got the activity, so I want the best crews and I want them when I want them. And by the way, I want the best prices. Right. And they're the same shops that can then go to the offtake people and say, well, look, you know, I I have a reliable amount of a BCF a day or 200,000 barrels a day of oil production. I want access to your pipeline with the best terms. So that kind of, that's where scale works for in, in certain basins. So, but there's also another kind of a, shall we say, conflicting message, which is you got this, uh, the Europeans are out there announcing we're shrinking and we're shrinking to grow our renewable portion of the portfolio. Then you go to the United States and you see the emergence of what I call the super independence. Mm-hmm. So you have the the, the big boys, um, the EOGs, the Devons and, and the Chesapeake that are coming out. They're 500 to a million barrels plus a day. And so their whole idea is that we're going to, we got to have this scale to compete going forward. So it's real interesting is that, um, and will be for the next 10 years as we try to figure out you know who the winners will be out of this uh consolidation and in future industry you know so you got big bets by the europeans that it's, it's going to be a, i'm going to be an energy company with i need a portfolio of everything you got u.s independence and no we're not doing that we're going to be best at production lowest cost and we're going to um tackle the um the future on climate by being zero emitters that's really going to be a given it, it almost is now a license to operate and then you got a bunch of folks national oil companies um, and others that are kind of in the middle some of them are on one camp some are in the other camp so it's a real pivotal time um, and it's a great time to be out there in the industry as everybody's trying to line up the best bet so to speak yeah well so, so I told you I'd have you out of here by the top of the hour and and we're at the uh top of the hour. So, so maybe I can just get one more parting thought from you. I mean, if, if you're looking forward over the next couple of years, that there's the, the, the bumper sticker that we've we've either seen or heard of, you know, God grant me one more oil boom. I promise not to mess this one up. Um, or, or are we thinking that there's going to be uh, opportunity for one more exploration boom, or it's really the, the, the growth avenue for what would have been uh, a fossil fuel explorationist in expanding one's portfolio to to look at low carbon activities and, and low carbon being more the exploration of the future. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is um, a good case to be made that going forward, um, there's scarcity 
um, in this era of abundance, as um, as we like to talk about. Uh, and so those that have the best advantaged barrels and those that retain those core exploration skills, I think are still going to have plenty of opportunities uh, going forward. And the, the trick will be to retain those explorers because that's a the folks that really are the new ventures, um, frontier emerging folks are very few and it's a special blend of creativity and science, but lots to come in the future. All right. Bob, thanks so much. I've enjoyed the uh, conversation and uh, we'll have to keep watching it and come back maybe uh, in the future here to, to see what the exploration business has done since we last talked. Absolutely. Uh, Hill, great to talk to you and I hope uh, see you again soon. In person, in person. Yep, in person. <laughs> All right. Bye. See ya. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.